Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, senators tank the long-anticipated border bill. Congress is back to square one on getting the votes to aid Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Meanwhile, the House will try again to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Melina Weiskup on Capitol Hill. Five Marines are missing. Their helicopter is found. What we know about the crash site as search and rescue efforts are now underway in Southern California. The U.S. kills the Hezbollah commander behind the deaths of three U.S. troops. Plus, the Hamas terrorist group proposes a ceasefire deal to release all remaining hostages in the Gaza Strip. How will Israel respond? Jason Perry reports. Another challenge to former President Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot, this time in New York. How will it fare as the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear arguments on a similar challenge tomorrow? Legal correspondent Arlene Richards reports. A total of nine killed. Californians are recuperating and assessing the damage. It's finally stopped raining after four straight days. We'll take you there, plus what's next in the forecast. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. After five months of back and forth at the negotiating table, Congress still has not created any new border laws. Can it muster the votes to send aid to Ukraine and Israel? NTD's Melina Weiskup is at Capitol Hill. Let's hear from her. That long-awaited border deal is now officially dead after senators tanked it in a vote this afternoon. That vote was not entirely along party lines. There were four Republicans who voted for it, while five Democrats voted against it in opposition to Israel aid. Now, as for where we stand now, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer is now trying to push forward a separate standalone foreign aid package to address funding for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. But even if the standalone package emerges from the Senate, its fate is questionable in the House. House Speaker Mike Johnson tried to yet again yesterday push a standalone Israel aid package that failed. Now he says he's going to try again with that very same package. As for where the speaker stands on the Ukraine aid, he says that issue has not been abandoned, but he still wants answers from the White House with regards to what's their strategy with their role in aiding Ukraine's fight against Russia. Now, as for this border deal that failed today, those lead Senate negotiators are livid, pointing to the politics at hand. I'm legitimately surprised at where we are at this moment because as Republicans, we've done lots of press conferences at the border. Don't come to Arizona. Take your political theater to Texas. Now, keep in mind, this comes after yesterday. There was a failed vote in the House to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas. This failed because there were three Republicans who defected. Now, we're here at the Democrats' yearly retreat where they do lay out their campaign strategy for this election year, and that's one of the first points that they made. They're really taking hold of this issue to be able to attack Republicans' inability to govern. Now, if Republicans, for their part, they're undeterred, saying that they're going to even try for a second round of voting to try and impeach. May work us. House Democrats will continue to defend our democracy. House Republicans continue to choose dysfunction. You're seeing the messy sausage making, the, the process of democracy play out. Mayorkas needs to be held accountable. The Biden administration needs to be held accountable. And we will pass those articles of impeachment. Uh, we'll, we'll do it on the next round. 
Now, as for Republicans' second attempt to try to impeach Mayorkas, they're going to wait until their majority leader, Steve Scalise, is back from health leave. They will be able to pass this with his vote if all the votes stay the same, even with those three defectors. But there is a curveball here. That is that special election next Tuesday in New York to replace former Congressman George Santos. If a Democrat is able to flip that seat, then Republicans still will not be able to impeach Mayorkas, even if all the votes stay the same. Reporting from Leesburg, Virginia, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A military helicopter that went missing has been found. The aircraft was carrying five Marines from Nevada to Southern California during the recent storm. Crews found a Marine Corps helicopter after it was reported missing early Wednesday. The five Marines that were on board are still missing. The aircraft flying from Nevada to California was reported overdue early Wednesday as a historic storm continued drenching California. The Marines were flying a CH-53E Super Stallion helicopter from Creech Air Force Base in Clark County, Nevada. They had been doing unit-level training and were returning home to Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego. It was not immediately known what time the helicopter left Creech or what time they were due to arrive. Waves of heavy downpours hit the area throughout the night, and snow was forecasted for San Diego County Mountains. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department was notified at 1 a.m. that the aircraft was overdue. It was last seen in the area of Pine Valley, a mountainous region near the Cleveland National Forest, about 35 miles east of downtown San Diego. The Marine Corps said the military was coordinating search and rescue efforts with the San Diego County Sheriff's Department and the Civil Air Patrol. The National Weather Service in San Diego called for 6 to 10 inches of snow in the mountains and gusty winds late Wednesday. On Tuesday afternoon, a tornado warning was issued, but quickly canceled with the Weather Service saying the storm was not capable of forming a twister. The Biden administration conducting more strikes against Iran proxy groups waging attacks in the Middle East. A strike killed a senior leader of the Kataib Hezbollah terrorist group in Iraq earlier today. The U.S. military launched the strike tonight local time near Baghdad. It's part of the retaliation over the death of three U.S. soldiers from the drone attack in Jordan. U.S. Central Command says the type Hezbollah leader was responsible for directly planning and participating in attacks on U.S. forces in the region. The military reports no collateral damage or civilian casualties. It says they will not hesitate to hold responsible all those who threaten the safety of U.S. forces. Pressure continues to mount as family members of the hostages held in the Gaza Strip urgently seek a ceasefire deal to free their loved ones. Now Hamas has proposed its own ceasefire deal. How will Israel respond? NTD's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. Israel Defense Forces on Wednesday reported finding a tunnel where hostages were held captive in the Gaza Strip. This commanding officer in the IDF first showed where the guards lived in that tunnel. Living here underground, one has to have the, the basic facilities and even more. Look around the other side, you can see a dining room. And then he showed the area where the hostages were held, behind these metal bars. We have another tunnel that goes through and goes all the way down to the bathroom. So just imagine a kidnap who has to go through here, has to go to the toilet. 
Israel has reported that 136 hostages are still being held in the Gaza Strip. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari on Tuesday said 31 of those hostages are now dead, leaving 105 hostages believed to still be alive. On Wednesday, lawmakers in D.C. met with family members of the hostages. We will help bring home every last hostage. We will not let Hamas succeed. The hostages must be released. Hamas has been reviewing the ceasefire deal that was recently proposed by the United States, Qatar and Egypt. And on Tuesday, officials from the Hamas terrorist group responded with their own ceasefire proposal to release the hostages. The ceasefire would last for about four and a half months, and all remaining hostages would be released in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. For this to happen, Hamas said Israel must withdraw its troops from the Gaza Strip and reach an agreement to end the war. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday appeared unmoved by the proposal. I would like to emphasize again that there is no solution other than total victory. If Hamas survives in Gaza, it is only a matter of time until the next massacre. Only a total victory will allow us to restore security in Israel, both in the north and in the south. Netanyahu's comments came just after he met with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who's been on his seventh tour of the Middle East since the war began. He spoke in Tel Aviv on Wednesday. Blinken said that although there are some non-starters in Hamas's proposal, he believes there's room for agreement to be reached. And Blinken said they'll work relentlessly until they get there. Jason Perry, NTD News. The New York Elections Board put former President Trump on the ballot, but some Democrats object. This comes as the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear the Colorado ballot case Thursday. Meanwhile, Trump is pushing to delay the classified documents case. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. Former President Trump was approved Tuesday to be on the New York State presidential ballot, but some Democrats aren't happy about it. Two Republicans on the New York State Board of Elections granted Trump the spot. Commissioner Anthony Casal said they received much correspondence regarding ballot access for Trump and that the correspondence asked them to remove Trump from the ballot. Casal and co-commissioner Peter Kaczynski said none of the requests followed the rules. New York Senator Brad Hoyleman Siegel and Councilmember Shakar Krishnan, both Democrats, immediately filed a formal objection Tuesday. In a statement, they said Trump should be disqualified under the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause because they believe that the former president engaged in a violent insurrection on January 6, 2021. The challengers say if Trump isn't removed from the ballot, they will appeal to the New York Supreme Court. Meanwhile, on Thursday, arguments begin before the nation's highest court in the Colorado ballot case. Trump is not expected to attend the hearing. He appealed the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling to remove him from the state's ballot. A ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court could impact all 50 states, including New York. The court's decision is expected to put an end to mounting Trump ballot challenges. In Florida, former President Trump's attorneys asked for an extension of pretrial deadlines. The request comes as they prepare to file motions to dismiss the classified documents case. Last year, President Trump was charged with 40 counts related to allegedly mishandling classified documents after the FBI raided his Mar-a-Lago resort. 
The attorneys plan to claim that Trump has presidential immunity, despite the same claim being rejected by a D.C. court on Tuesday. Other filings coming include motions to suppress evidence and dismiss the indictment. The classified documents case was originally meant to go to trial in May. Late last year, the judge reset certain deadlines and indicated that a delay was likely necessary. If the new requests for deadline delays are granted, it would further push back the schedule. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Former President Trump is expected to give remarks from his Mar-a-Lago resort following the Supreme Court's hearing on Thursday. A federal judge today denying former President Trump's motions for a mistrial in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. The judge said Trump's arguments have no merit and are entirely pointless. Judge Lewis Kaplan previously denied Trump's motions for a mistrial during the civil trial. In today's opinion, Kaplan said granting a mistrial would be pointless because it would mean the trial has to start over. Trump sought a mistrial when Ms. Carroll admitted she deleted some death threats. She said she received the threats immediately after her allegations against Trump became public in June 2019. The judge said Ms. Carroll did not have a duty to save electronic information until after she hired a lawyer, which she said was in mid-July. The jury hearing the case awarded Carroll over $83 million in damages. President Biden rallying his donors to stop former President Trump by calling him an existential threat. The failed border deal in the Senate prompts Biden to shift from defense to offense on one of his most criticized policies. NTD's Iris Tao has more from Washington, D.C. President Biden, who attended three fundraisers in New York City today, told donors that, quote, there is one existential threat, it's Donald Trump. And that's according to a report by the White House and press pool. Biden also warned that Trump will, quote, try to undo everything we have done, while also criticizing Trump for, quote, threatening Republicans to make them walk away from a now-failed border deal in the Senate. And that is exactly the message that President Biden tried to amplify on Tuesday in trying to wield the border crisis for which he has come under fire for in the past three years, now against his main 2024 rival. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. Trump's campaign is calling Biden's latest narrative here a brazen, pathetic lie. Meanwhile, as President Biden is expected to campaign together with former Presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton next month, Trump on Wednesday warned that Biden, Obama and Bush would, quote, all be in prison if a president does not have presidential immunity. And that's Trump's latest response to a Tuesday ruling by an appeals court here in D.C. denying his presidential immunity claim in the 2020 election interference case. Case. Trump, meanwhile, is expected to appeal that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court in the coming days. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Coming up, Nevada holding both a GOP primary and a caucus this week. Our guest explains the reasons behind it and Nikki Haley's loss to none of these candidates. Lawmakers today investigating America's election integrity. We bring you what they said about Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg and why he shouldn't be allowed to donate to election offices. A small break in the rain for Californians. We'll take a look at the current damage as residents brace for more storms in the forecast. That's coming up.
Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley lost the Nevada GOP primary on Tuesday to none of these candidates. Former President Trump's name was not on the ballot. He's running instead in the Nevada caucus on Thursday. Joining us now is Epic Times reporter Janice Heisel, who was in Nevada to report on the primary election. Janice Heisel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Thank you. Now, Nevada has both a caucus and a primary for the Republican Party that's resulting in Trump and Nikki Haley being on separate ballots. Help us understand how we got to this point. Well, it dates back to a change in the state law. The Democrat-led state legislature, the lawmakers, decided that they wanted to switch from a caucus system to a primary system. Now, for those who aren't familiar, a caucus is actually just a fancy word for getting together, talking, and voting. But you have to do it in person. And so what happened is they changed the state law to go to this primary. But the Republican Party said, no, we want to keep the caucus. So therefore, they told the state, go ahead and run the primary, but we're going to set our own rules. Because at the end of the day, both parties, Democrat and Republican, decide who gets the crucial delegates that help decide who becomes the nominee for the November general election for president. And so then we have now dueling primary and caucus for the Republicans. So that is the short answer to a long process as to how we ended up like this. And now the caucus counts toward that delegate count. The primary does not. Hmm. And now what have locals been telling you about these changes? Well, actually, it seems like the voters that we spoke to, I talked to about a dozen voters yesterday at a polling site, and they didn't seem to be confused despite this change. However, the turnout was really, really low. The uh, whole state, when I last checked, was somewhere around 15,000 to 16,000 people, which is very, very low, especially when you consider that the most populous county in 2020, for the primary, there were 330,000 votes cast alone for that one county. So um, that just gives you an idea that the turnout was very, very low. Now, what I did hear from the residents was that um, they had some very interesting uh, positions to take, but at the bottom line, one of the things that was so impressive to me is they all talked about the importance of voting. Those few who did show up felt passionately about it. We even spoke to a woman who had cancer and made her way to the polls. Wow, that is incredible. And now speaking of the primary, Nikki Haley lost the primary to the option called none of these. How does that even work? Well, Nevada has had this interesting option. I believe it's the only state in the country that has none of these candidates, but that's been on the ballot literally since 1975. And since that time, none of these candidates has actually been pretty popular now and then with the voters. But it's my understanding this is the first time that none of these candidates actually got more than 50% of the vote. So Nikki Haley, as I understand it, was making kind of a calculated risk that she wanted to be in the primary. You couldn't, as a candidate, be in both the primary and the caucus. You had to choose one or the other. And she chose the primary, I believe, with the, the hope that the headline could be Nikki Haley wins primary. Instead, that headline became Nikki Haley loses to none of these candidates. Quite the development right there indeed. Janice Heisel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The Biden administration has arrested and charged a political operative with election fraud. It stems from a mail-in ballot fraud scheme the man is accused of running in 2022. 
Craig Calloway is the former president of the City Council in Atlantic City, New Jersey. According to prosecutors, Calloway submitted fraudulent mail-in ballots on behalf of other voters in the 2022 midterms. Calloway allegedly paid people to work at the Atlantic County Clerk's Office and to act as purported messengers for voters. Calloway and his subordinates ultimately cast multiple mail-in ballots that were counted in the 2022 election, but they were cast in the names of people who later confirmed they did not vote in 2022. Calloway faces up to five years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000. Investigating America's election integrity, the author of a popular book on election interference testified before a House committee today. She describes some of the main issues our election system is facing. We have one side actively attempting to throw its opponent in prison and bankrupt his family. Again, reminiscent of Soviet Russia. Molly Hemingway is the author of Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. She criticized, among other things, the fact that elections take much longer than they used to. The situation is so absurd that we have presidential and gubernatorial debates weeks after some people have already voted. We flood addresses across the country with tens of millions of unsupervised mail-in ballots months ahead of elections, frequently to locations from which voters, if they're even alive, have long since moved. Some lawmakers at the hearing focused on private funds flowing to election offices. They say that unlike political contributions, these funds are not regulated. In 2020, tech entrepreneur Mark Zuckerberg and his wife reportedly donated $350 million, which ultimately ended up at local election offices. Most of the money went to predominantly Democratic districts in swing states across the country. Republicans allege that the money was then used to increase Democrats' voter turnout. The committee's chairman compared the situation to this week's Super Bowl, in which San Francisco will play. If the refs were paid for by a tech billionaire from San Francisco, this wouldn't instill confidence in the game. The same goes for our elections administration. Undue private influence distorts Americans' confidence in our election. Multiple Republicans at the hearing made clear that the private funding of election offices should be made illegal. Democrats said conservatives should let go of their claims of voter fraud in 2020. In New Hampshire, authorities have identified the culprit behind a round of AI-generated spam calls pretending to be President Biden. They were all traced back to the Texas-based Life Corporation. According to State Attorney General John Formella, up to 24,000 fake calls were made just two days before the primary, urging voters to stay home and vote in November instead. At a press conference, Formella said the robocalls came two weeks after the DNC sent out a memo calling the primary vote meaningless and non-binding. Formella then sent a cease and desist letter to the DNC, ordering it to stop making such statements. California braces for more atmospheric rivers while assessing the aftermath of the recent storms. A small break in the rain gives Southern Californians a chance to gauge cleanup efforts. NTD's Stephanie Sakal reports. While it's currently sunny out, Southern California is bracing for additional atmospheric river storms after days of intense rainfall that led to flooded streets, mudslides and debris. 
the reason Pineapple Express storms originating from subtropical waters around Hawaii brought record-breaking rainfall to Los Angeles, prompting flood watches and warnings throughout Southern California. The three-day storm claimed at least nine lives, causing widespread destruction with now over 400 mudslides, 300 falling trees, structure fires and water rescues. As another storm approaches, officials including Governor Gavin Newsom have declared a state of emergency for eight counties, urging residents to prepare for more heavy rain, potential flooding and high winds. The California Highway Patrol shared footage of a severely damaged road in the Mojave Desert on February 6. Weather forecasting service AccuWeather estimates that the total damage and economic loss for this week's intense storms could range between $9 and $11 billion. Around 70,000 residents across California were without power as of Wednesday morning, according to Power Outage U.S. Crews are working to clear flooded or blocked roads resulting from debris. Wednesday morning and afternoon should provide a break from the days of pouring rain for most of Southern California, but another round of showers will move in later tonight. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, California. Turning to the immigration crisis, Denver reportedly started ejecting illegal immigrants from its city shelters. In January, Denver city leaders said they would reinstate a policy limiting the days immigrants can stay in state-provided rooms. That's to deal with the growing number of people arriving in the city. Multiple leaders are advocating for more federal aid in recent weeks. That includes the mayor of Denver and both of Colorado's Democratic U.S. Senators. Fox News now reports that 800 immigrant families will be removed from city shelters. 143 were removed on Monday. The rest will be asked to leave over the next few weeks. And a turn of events for illegal immigrants accused of attacking NYPD officers in Times Square were not arrested in Arizona. ICE agents said they arrested four suspects on Monday who they believe were involved in the assault. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office said today the four individuals in custody are not affiliated with the New York City investigation. That means the illegal immigrants accused of assaulting NYPD officers are still on the run. Coming up, we talk to the Wolf of Wall Street about his new book, The Wolf of Investing, what he calls his insider's playbook for making a fortune on Wall Street. And weight loss drugs are gaining popularity around the world. Our guest says that's because obesity is the most serious public health issue, especially for Americans. But how safe are the drugs? Find out after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Senate Republicans blocked the border deal that ties into aid in for Ukraine and Israel. Senators will now decide if they can agree on a foreign aid package that's not connected to the southern border. Search crews in Southern California found a Marine Corps helicopter after it was reported missing overnight. The five Marines who were on board are still missing. A U.S. strike kills a senior leader of the Kataib Hezbollah terrorist group in Iraq. He was behind the strikes that killed three American troops. And the Hamas terrorist group proposes a four-and-a-half-month-long truce, as well as Israel's complete withdrawal from Gaza. The Israeli prime minister responded, saying there's no solution other than total victory. 
New York approves former President Trump's spot on the state's ballot, while a federal judge denies Trump's motions for a mistrial in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. And on Thursday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in the Colorado ballot case that disqualified Trump. Jordan Belfort, a.k.a. The Wolf of Wall Street, has come out with a new book on investing. The former stockbroker turned federal convict turned best-selling author talks with us about his strategies created through years on Wall Street. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. Jordan Belfort, also known as The Wolf of Wall Street, achieved international fame when his hit autobiography turned into a hit movie starring actor Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, Belford has come out with The Wolf of Investing, his insider's playbook for investing. Belford says he knows investing so well, it should have taken him a week to write the book. It ended up taking him over three years. All the books are written in a dry and boring way, so people don't read them. And I think there's a massive market out there, people who, who are thirsty for this information, but they're not going to consume it unless it is fun and readable, makes them turn the page. So what took me so long was to figure out a way how to write this that would make people laugh out loud, turn the page, keep them engaged. Belfort says he speaks a lot about sales and entrepreneurship. So writing a book on investing was a natural extension of that. The book aims to help people increase their income and help them save for retirement. One of his key tips, don't trust the experts when it comes to investing. You can trust experts in other professions, but... Wall Street, the stock market, is that one exception to this otherwise steadfast rule of seeking out experts to get the best result possible. The bottom line is the experts on Wall Street take away, subtract more value than they give. So you're better off just doing it yourself if you know how. Belford started working in Wall Street at L.F. Rothschild, a firm that collapsed in the 1987 stock market crash. He later started his own brokerage firm, Stratton Oakmont. It became one of the most successful firms in the country. But regulators eventually shut it down for money laundering and securities fraud, most notably cold calling potential investors and persuading them to buy stocks of questionable value. After 22 months in prison, Belfort now teaches his straight-line persuasion system across the world. A global demand for Ozempic has sparked a shortage, leaving diabetes patients in need. This is due to people around the world turning to the drug and others like it for weight loss. Joining us now to discuss the popularity of weight loss drugs and related lawsuits, we have Dr. Scott Atlas. He's a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and a former advisor on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Dr. Scott Atlas, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Happy to be here. Now, global demand for weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wivgovi means that there is a shortage for diabetes patients who do need them. Now, how easy is it for people to access these if they don't have type 2 diabetes? Does that criteria need to be stricter? Well, I think that it's just like uh, other drugs, and there's a, a, a large sort of latitude in how doctors use FDA-approved drugs. We have to remember that you know, obesity is really the number one public health problem, certainly in the United States. I mean, if you take the top two public health problems, they're obesity and Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And obesity is obviously the, the main sort of linked uh, disease to diabetes itself. So I, I think it's, it's not necessarily a, a separate population. 
and the demand for obesity uh, drugs is, is reasonable. And on that note about obesity, is that why we're seeing such a craze around these weight loss drugs, or what's driving this? Well, obesity is uh, really the most serious public health problem in the country and realistically uh, the most damaging uh, disease we have. It's, the, it's, a, it's a lifestyle disease, meaning that uh, it's at least partially controlled by lifestyle changes. That's proven in the literature, although it's, it's very, it can be very difficult. So it's very serious. Obesity is, caused, is linked to some of the most uh, harmful diseases we have. Uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, a dozen cancers, kidney disease, even Alzheimer's disease, complications from pregnancy and surgery, et cetera. So it's extraordinarily uh, important and harmful, and the data shows that it reduces life expectancy as well as what's called uh, quality life years. So, you know, it's a killer, and the U.S. is the fattest country in the developed world. I mean, we have, for overweight and obesity, the latest statistics are that 70% of Americans are in one of those two categories. This is very, very serious, extraordinarily harmful. And uh, the problem is the drugs are both uh, expensive, but also they have side effects. And I think, uh, you know, it's up to your doctor, but the, the first line of defense is doing everything you can to reduce what you, what you eat that's bad for you and increase your activity. On the note of side effects, there are a slew of lawsuits. 55 are alleging that drug companies fail to warn consumers of the risks and potential side effects. Give us a sense of what these risks could be. Sure. The, the known uh, most common side effects from the drug are actually due to the way the drug works uh, intent, in, in its intent, and that is it reduces sort of the outflow of food from your stomach and slows down the passage of food, and that sort of retains a feeling of being full. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you get uh, an undesired amount of that, you get nausea, vomiting, and now even reportedly uh, what's called ileus, which is a reduced uh, passage of fluid in your intestines, a reduced sort of functioning of your intestines. And then, of course, there are other side effects that are reported but being investigated that are uh, unrelated to the GI system, and that is things like hair loss, even suicidal ideation. These are self-reported. They're being investigated by the FDA. It's not clear if there's a direct, uh, you know, uh, relationship. I think we all have to remember, when we take drugs, there are always side effects, potentially. And so it's always better, as a general statement, to do everything you can to not have to depend on drugs. It does seem a lot of this is driven by the celebrity craze. We see people like Oprah Winfrey taking the drug and revealing their great results and having other people jump on this craze. Help us maybe understand what the risks are when you do take advice from what you see on TV. I'll give you another example of something that was horrendous, in my opinion, that was said by Mayor Adams of New York City in May of 2023. He frankly lied and said, quote, science has shown that body type is not related to health. I mean, that's just contrary 
to fact that's extremely harmful. When we have people in leadership positions, they need to have responsible uh, dialogue. They need to understand what their importance is. So I, I think people, again, we're in a world, I've said this before, the burden's on us as thinking individuals to educate ourselves, to make the best decisions for ourselves, for our children. We have an explosion, by the way, from the pandemic lockdowns of obesity, particularly in young people. I mean, this is extremely dangerous. We need to be serious as a society, recognize what's bad for our health and what's not, and then uh, always, again, uh, use appropriate medical advice, not people you see on TV. Dr. Scott Atlas, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks. Coming up, major brands get ready to advertise this Super Bowl Sunday. Find out what makes for a successful commercial and how much a 30-second advertisement costs. And in Olympic news, how a strawberry dessert became the focus of a figure skating doping explanation. Dave Martin joins us to explain this unusual defense when we return. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The nation's largest bank is about to get bigger. JP Morgan is announcing plans to open more than 500 new branches in the U.S. over the next three years. Here's NTD's Don Ma with today's business brief. It seems like the largest bank in the U.S. wants to get even bigger. J.P. Morgan Chase says it's opening more than 500 new Chase locations over the next three years, and those branches will need 3,500 new employees. J.P. Morgan is expanding in major cities and also in new markets like rural communities with few traditional banks there. Now, the company has always bet big on physical locations. It opened more than 650 new branches in the past five years. The bank's CFO says physical branches drive engagement and customer loyalty. JP Morgan is the largest U.S. bank, both in terms of net assets and number of branches. It has physical locations in every state in the U.S. And a new survey is revealing that inflation and the U.S. presidential election will be the top drivers of global markets this year. Traders told J.P. Morgan that they see inflation as having the biggest impact on markets. At the same time, they're also preparing for more volatility ahead of the likely rematch between former President Donald Trump and Joe Biden in November. The survey also found that investors are also increasingly valuing consistent access to liquidity as electronic trading grows. Plus, recession fears, which took place last year, was pushed down to the list since economic growth beat expectations. And finally, with AI tools rapidly advancing and capable of creating fake realistic images, tech companies like Meta are setting up policies to protect its users. Meta announced that it's working to identify and tag any AI-generated images that were created by third-party tools on its platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. It already applies a similar tag to photos created with its AI generator tool. Meta is preparing for the 2024 election season and trying to stop the spread of misinformation that could mislead voters. The AI generated image labels will be rolled out in the coming months in multiple languages. 
Football fans are getting ready for the San Francisco 49ers to take on the Kansas City Chiefs at Super Bowl 58 this Sunday. But the game is also an opportunity for major brands to score big with their commercials. And it is Andrew Thomas has the details. The Super Bowl offers one of the largest audiences of the year for advertisers. John Evans is chief customer officer at System One, a company that predicts an ad's impact. And I think there's no better stage to put your brand on than the Super Bowl. And the other thing is, if you're a Super Bowl advertiser, that's, that's sending out a really powerful message to your audience that actually you're a big brand and you're one that they should listen to. And the opportunity to leverage a Super Bowl spot with your customers and your audience is enormous. The spots on CBS, which will broadcast the game, sold out in November. Celebrities are a big part of the show every year. Soccer star Lionel Messi plays for Michelob Ultra this Sunday. Mr. Messi! Top at the moment, the best, the best scoring ad at the moment, is Michelob Ultra. And they've got Lionel Messi in their ad, which I think is really quite funny because you've got a soccer player advertising on a football night. So that's quite entertaining. But so far, they're in the lead. They've got 4.8 stars out of five. Evans says the way to make the most of having a celebrity ad is having their image tell a story about the brand. Chris Jenner is in the Oreo spot, and Jason Momoa sings for T-Mobile. Doritos are the best performing Super Bowl advertiser we've ever had in our database, so every year they always score very highly. Another good one is T-Mobile. T-Mobile, again, they always score very highly. Um, and after that, I'd say um, Pringles and M&Ms. Evan says using humor and sticking to proven ways in advertising is also a safe bet. So the great thing, I think, this year, as many years, it's funny, it's entertaining, there's lots of celebrity, everybody is involved, and there's, there's a really big all-star cast. So I think sometimes, actually, not changing the winning formula is often the best thing you can do. More than 115 million people watched last year's Super Bowl game, an all-time viewership record. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And in more sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of sports to discuss, but let's start in the NBA, where Dallas All-Star Kyrie Irving was in Brooklyn last night and blaming Mayor Eric Adams for his time there. What was that all about? Uh, that was about the COVID ban. Now, Irving had a great game last night, but while he was standing on the sidelines to inbound the ball, a fan sitting courtside asked him why he didn't play like this when he was with uh, Brooklyn. He said, thank Mayor Adams for that. And someone captured that exchange on their cell phone. It went viral. Now, that goes back to Irving's somewhat disappointing time with the Nets from 2019 to 2023. At one point, they had three superstars with him, Kevin Durant, and James Harden. Collectively, they fell short of expectations, though. Part of the reason why was Irving's absence for home games during the 2022 season because he wasn't vaccinated against COVID. I mean, it really defied logic that opposing unvaccinated players were allowed to play in Brooklyn or Manhattan, but Irving couldn't. I think uh, the epitome of it was when Brooklyn played at the New York Knicks in Manhattan and Irving actually attended the game as a fan. He just wasn't allowed to play on the court. Now, although the rule is gone the next season, the damage was really done. Eventually, they traded Irving away and ran Harden, but they've struggled even worse ever since. Hmm. Well, now shifting gears to the Super Bowl, CBS analyst Tony Romo says he may bring back his trademark ability of predicting plays right before they happen. Did he say why he stopped this? 
You know, he actually explained a few years back that that was something he actually wasn't supposed to do. I don't know if he was referring to his producers telling him not to, but it really amazed viewers when he did it. But it wasn't like Jim Nance would put him on the spot and ask him, you know, what's next now? But he was amazing at it. He actually earned him the nickname Romo Stradamus. Of course, he was a former quarterback in the league and a very good one, so he knows how quarterbacks operate and he can read defenses. A lot of times he did those predictions when the quarterback would change the call at the line of scrimmage, also known as audibling, because he probably saw what they saw on defense and knew what he'd do. So I don't think it was planned at all. I was always amazed when he did it. So I'm looking forward to him uh, doing it again. Well, now Altura in Las Vegas. The mayor recently made waves when she said baseball's Oakland A's, who's planning to move to Vegas, should pitch a new plan in the Bay Area instead. Why does she feel that way? Yeah, she doesn't like the stadium location. Now, it's surprising that a mayor isn't welcoming a pro team with open arms, so it must be significant. She, this is Carolyn Goodman, apparently said their stadium plan, which is right on the Vegas Strip, doesn't make sense. Apparently, there are concerns about congestion in the area being a problem. She'd actually proposed a site in North Las Vegas, but she and the city actually don't have jurisdiction over the Strip. Only the county does. Now, I will say the A's plan has a number of things still up in the air. For instance, the $380 million of public funding uh, for their $1.5 billion stadium is being challenged in the court. And the stadium isn't expected to be ready until 2028, yet their lease on their own stadium runs out after 2024. They have yet to figure out where they're going to play for the three seasons in between. Now, she did clarify her comments, saying she was excited about the prospect of a Major League Baseball team being in Las Vegas, but she didn't back off of her earlier comments. Well, now moving to Olympic news, we recently covered the case of Russian Olympic figure skater Kamila Valieva, who blamed a positive doping test on a mix-up with her grandfather's heart medication. What's the latest in this case? Well, the latest is more details on that explanation. You know, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, or CAS, already ruled on it. They didn't buy that explanation, banned her for four years instead, including her time in the 2022 Olympics. That was significant because she was a star there. She led Russia to a gold in the team event. Now, what came out today was the CAS's 129-page ruling that details Valieva's explanation. Specifically, the judges were asked to believe that her grandfather accidentally dropped a pill into a strawberry dessert while he was preparing it for, or because there were some crushed residues of a tablet on the chopping board that he prepared, prepared it with, something like that. But the judges in this case said there were too many shortcomings and unanswered questions. They also said there was no evidence that he was taking this medication in the first place. Now this case might not actually be over because Canada, which originally finished fourth in the team event, sounded like they might appeal Russia being only dropped to third instead of being disqualified altogether, which would give Canada the bronze. So two years later, this case might not be over still. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.